Our text this morning for the preaching is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 13 and 14. I'll read from chapter 2 verses 9 through 15 just so we get the context and the platform of this part of the letter to the Thessalonians. But the preaching will be just those two verses, 13 and 14. As you're turning there, let me just point out that this letter to the Thessalonians is coming to an end, and so is the series then in these letters to the Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians being that series. And in this ending of this letter to them, Paul is very intent to make sure that this young church is very much grounded in the gospel. As obvious as that sounds, remember that they're a young church where Paul only spent maybe three weeks, maybe four weeks, just a few Sabbaths, three Sabbaths, so up to four weeks. And many questions had come in, stirred them up during these short time that they had been in existence, and Paul soon had to write to them to get them squared away. And so as he's closing out this letter, he is grounding them, as I said, in the work of God in bringing them to Jesus Christ, in how the gospel was actually brought to them and the sureness and the confidence that they can have in this work of God and so continue to grow into the image of Christ and to continue to please God with their lives just as you are doing, as he said three times in the first letter to them. So he's making sure that they can continue this by having this confidence in God. And in these verses we have this morning, we'll see where this confidence comes from. So these two verses, just before we read them, I'll have you stand in a moment. A theologian commentator named James Denny says here that these two verses are a system of theology in miniature. The Apostles' Thanksgiving covers the whole work of creation from the eternal choice of God to the obtaining of the glory of Jesus Christ in the world to come. So this morning you're about to get the proverbial teaspoon of water from a fire hydrant. A teaspoon of theology, if you will, from a 45 or so minute sermon. And so we see in the scriptures how God saves sinners and what motivates God to do this and why we can be so sure in the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that, please stand in honor of God's word. As I said, I'll read 2 Thessalonians beginning in chapter 2, verse 9. I'll read to verse 15. When we get to verse 13, I'll slow down and remind you that that is the preaching text for the morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in righteousness. Our text this morning begins here. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. May God bless the reading and all the proclamation of his word. Please be seated. So let me ask you a question to begin. Why do you or I do what we do? I mean, at any given moment, 
Why do we choose this over that or that over this? It was Jonathan Edwards who said that people always choose that which tends most towards their happiness. And of course, the way that 19th, or excuse me, 18th century theologian meant happiness, he meant your own self-interest, that, that which would promote your interest or as you perceive your interest in any given moment, small issues and large issues alike. As a small issue, when I get a sweet tooth, which I have to admit is not very often, but when I want a candy bar, when that's in my self-interest to have one, I want a Butterfinger. And so in order to enact my self-interest, I will stop at the store on the way of home out of this office, go inside, take some money on my wallet, and buy a Butterfinger. Well, that's a small deal with no consequence, but I've decided that that's my self-interest, and I enact that interest. But even decisions of great consequence, you're going to run through the same filter, are you not? If my self-interest is physical fitness, then that interest is served by taking time out of the day to exercise, maybe getting up early, eating a special diet. If my self-interest is the good of my wife, I'm going to take time to be with her and to promote her because her self-interest is mine. We choose investment funds, we choose colleges, we choose what trade we're going to make a living with. The same way, what promotes my self-interests? Sometimes the interests we advance are short-term, like my Butterfinger bar, or long-term, like marriage, or like career. So I want to ask the same question again, but this time I want to put God into the equation. Why does God save why does God save? And the answer is, and we're going to develop this in the verses before, is God saves because God advances his self-interests in the salvation of sinners. God advances his own interests when he saves sinners and by his spirit brings them to Jesus Christ. He sets aside his chosen. He gives you faith to believe his truth. He sets you on the path to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of this to advance his own interests. We'll see this in the first half of verse 13, and then in the rest of that verse, the last part of verse 13, we're going to see the means that God uses to accomplish this self-interest that he has, and finally in verse 14, we will see the goal that God has in all this. So God advancing his own self-interest, not in the way that we do, and not making decisions we do, and we'll talk about that in a little while, but he does advance his self-interest in the salvation of sinners. So we'll see this in verse, verse 13. And we'll see the means that he uses to accomplish his interests in the second half of verse 13. And we'll see the goal that he has in mind of all this. Well, first of all, God advances his interest by choosing a people for himself. By choosing a people for himself, and ultimately it's a people for himself that he gives over to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that people that Jesus Christ is going to go to the cross and redeem by his atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is in the first half of this verse, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Now this word chose is important. And this word chose is the reason that I'm developing this idea of God's self-interest. And sometimes a hazardous thing, develop an entire sermon based upon a word. But in this case, God willing, you'll see how important this is. The word chose here, the one that Paul uses, is not the more common word for choosing or for chose, which would be eklego, 
You don't have to remember that. Eklego is a word for choosing something. And that's the one that's very common in the scripture. This word that he uses, and you don't have to remember this either, but it's oreomai. All I have to know is that it's not the more common word for choosing. This word that Paul uses here in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 is only used 11 times in the whole Bible. Eight of them in the Greek translation of the Hebrew in the Old Testament, and three times in the New Testament. Twice by Paul, and once in Hebrews, so maybe three times by Paul, depending on who you think wrote the book of Hebrews. Each time it's used, it's used in the middle voice. And that means to act in one's behalf, to act for your own benefit. That's what the middle voice is in the Greek. So it has the idea here of areomai, of choosing, of taking something for oneself, of making a discerning choice to advance one's interests. Let me give you a few examples. Joshua 24, 15, Israel's general tells them to choose this day whom you will serve. In Job chapter 34, verse 4, Job says, let us choose what is right. In other words, choosing that which will advance your own interests. Now there's two uses of this in the book of Deuteronomy that relate much more directly to our context here this morning, this idea of choosing a people. In Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verse 17 and 18, Moses says to the people of Israel, you have declared, and that's our word, you have chosen today that the Lord is your God and that you'll walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. You've chosen. You have advanced your self-interest by choosing to follow the Lord God. Now, as commonly pointed out in the catechetical catechism teaching this morning, you don't actually choose Jesus unless Jesus changes your heart and the Father draws you to Jesus. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. We know that. This is ancient Israel that had seen the mighty works of God and had heard the terms that God sets forth in his law to them to be his people, and they had, as it were, signed on the dotted line. They had chosen, in that sense, to follow God. They advanced their self-interest. That's that word. They advanced their self-interest by choosing to follow God. This is what he says. And then it goes on, and the Lord has declared, and it's the same word, he has declared, he has chosen today that you are people for his treasured possession, as he promised you. He will set you in praise and in fame and in honor above all nations that he has made, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he promised. So we have here divine sovereignty and human responsibility set before us side by side. You choose what you see as your best interest. You choose Jesus Christ, and that's what the Arminians would say. We would say, sure, but only when God changes your heart so that you want to, by that working of the Spirit within a new heart, choose that path. But divine, response, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, here side by side, choosing your best interest, and Israel here chose God. And we can say that nothing serves our interests better than to place ourselves under God's care. Nothing will advance what are your true interests better or more, more faithfully than to place yourself under God's interests. What about God? How are God's interests advanced? I mean, it sounds so human to attribute that to God, that God makes a choice and advances his own interests. 
How does he do this? How, why would Paul use this special word, advancing one interest in relation to God? Well, God advances his interests in choosing a people for himself because he is a God who keeps his word. He gave his word to choose out a people, to save Israel from Egypt and to redeem them and to bring them to the promised land. He gave his word to do that. Nothing compelled him to keep his word. Nothing compelled him to, excuse me, to give his word. But once he's given his word, once he's staked out his self-interest in keeping that word, then he does just that. He keeps his word because his honor is at stake once he gives his word. Of his own volition, nothing compelling him to do so. That's very important to remember. But once he does, his very nature says, my interests are advanced by keeping that word, by doing as I promised. So in Philippians 1.22 is another use of the word. Paul says, He's writing of his dilemma between wanting to leave this life and be with Christ, which is better by far, or continue in this life and serve him while here. He says, but which I shall choose, where I shall find myself interest, I cannot tell. I want to be with Christ. That's better, but I want to serve Christ because that's great. And as long as Christ keeps me here, I will choose to follow him. That's advancing his self-interest because his interests have become God's interests. Or I should say God's interests have become his in Hebrews 11.25, it speaks of Moses choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. How did Moses advance his self-interest? By choosing to, to be mistreated for the sake of the gospel rather than enjoying what could have been his as a prince of Egypt. Now, God, of course, does not make choices the way we do. He doesn't go through a calculus to see which path is going to turn out better for him. His interest in keeping his own freely given word, it's his commitment of his own volition that flows from his very nature. So why does God save? How does God advance his self-interest in saving the likes of you or me? Well, he does it because he's a word-keeping God. Because once he gives his word, it's impossible that he should break his word, for it is impossible for God to lie. So whatever God promises in his word, the promises that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ, God keeps because his interest is in keeping his word. And that's the sureness, that's the confidence that you can have that if you are in Christ Jesus and God has predestined you to be conformed to his image, as it says in Romans 8, 29, then that is surely your destiny. Because you can do it? No. Because you said, I want to be like Jesus? No. Because God, by his Spirit, made you want to be like Jesus. God changed your self-interest so that his interests are your interests. And by the power of his Spirit, through a process of sanctification that we'll speak about, he brings you more and more into that image because he keeps his word. Why did God save you or me? I mean, look at us. God did not look down and say, well, that Josh Sheldon is sure going to be a swell guy. And he's going to be a great benefit to my reputation and my kingdom. So because he's going to be so grand, or you're going to be so great, or you're so smart, or you're so handsome, or whatever the case is, I'm going to save that one. No, not at all. God chooses for his own purposes. As he told Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, I didn't choose you because you're a great people. You're the least of all people. 
And he didn't even mean numerically the least. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're just the, the least attractive of all people. I saved you because I chose of my own volition, for my own purposes, for my own interests, to set my love upon you. And so with the gospel, the same. Why did he save you or me? Because in eternity past, God the Father chose a people to be redeemed by God the Son, who will be brought to the Son by God the Holy Spirit. The triune God made this pact, and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit advanced God's interests by fulfilling what he promised. For your homework, I don't want to see thumbs on the phones right now, but for your homework, if you want to understand that a little bit better, read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Read it three or four times. It'll just take you a few minutes, and you'll see this, this work, this coordination between Father, Son, Spirit, the one true God in the salvation of sinners where God chooses, the Son redeems, and the Spirit applies. God advances his interests in keeping his word, and his word was to choose out a people. Ephesians 1, 3-14 would say that this people was chosen before the foundation of the world. You were chosen individually to be in Christ and that benefit from the redemption that he wrought on the cross. And in this choosing... God makes a personal claim upon those whom he has given over to his son. He makes a personal claim on you. It says God chose you. We worked on chose a bit. We chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Now some see a problem with the fact that the Philippians were converted before the Thessalonians. And if you read in the book of Acts chapter 16, certainly he went to Philippi before he got to Thessalonica. And so the first fruits should be the Philippians and the Thessalonians should be the two fruits or the second fruits or something like that. But first fruits here is not meant sequentially. Not at all. First fruits here means, as I said a moment ago, it means that which God has claimed as his own. You read in the book of Revelation how Jesus puts a name on you that only you and he know. Now, you don't pray that name and he's not going to give it to you and it's a special name that only you're going to be able to speak out. It's nothing like that. It's speaking of God's particular claim. On each individual, he gave over to his son, Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul says here when he says that God chose you. That's a, speaking to a church, speaking to a people, but you can make it singular. He chose you if you're in Christ. He chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, speaking of the 144,000 witnesses, says these were redeemed from among, among men being the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Not the first to be saved, obviously. Those claimed by God and given over to God. God put his stamp and said, These are mine, redeemed by my Son. James 1.18, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Again, not first in order, but claimed by God. His stamp of ownership on those his, his Son, Jesus Christ, redeemed. Is an amazing fact to understand from the Bible that God's interests are advanced. God's self-interest, remember that's a special word that Paul uses there, are advanced in your salvation. If you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ, if he set his spirit upon you and you believe and you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sin, you're an advancement of the interests of God himself. Incredible. 
God has advanced his own interest by choosing the people upon whom he's laid this claim. And he advances his interest by actually converting the people that he's chosen. The second half of verse 13 says, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You know, the choice of this beneficial self-interest path, it means little if anything if that choice is not at some point brought to fruition. I mean, imagine if you said, well, I'm 19 years old. I've gotten good grades in high school. I want to be an engineer. That's my self-interest. I'm going to be an engineer, as many of you here are engineers. And I'm going to advance my self-interest by going to San Jose State University, which has a program for that particular slice of engineering in which I have the greatest interest, and my self-interest will be advanced by going there and studying. And a week later, you go to your friend who just made that statement. They say, well, when are you going to go to San Jose State? So, well, I don't know. Well, did you apply? Oh, no. Well, you said your interest is in going there. Aren't you going to apply? No, I just have a self-interest in being an engineer who graduates from San Jose State University. You can see where this goes. At some point, you have to make the application. You have to go speak to a counselor. You have to get yourself into the school. You have to enact what you've said is your self-interest. Well, God advances his interests in the people he chose before the foundation of the world, as you could read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, by actually converting them by actually setting His Spirit upon you and bringing you to Christ, the one He has chosen you to be in. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now we could say this of God. He chose the people who would follow His Son before He made the world. The pact made among the three persons of the Godhead had to be actualized in time and space, in history, if you will, before it could have its intended effect. How does he do this? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Conversion. By conversion by the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is from the same word as holy. So he's made you holy. And there's two aspects of this word sanctification we need to think about for just a moment. The first part of it is it's an act of God. It's a declaration of God whereby when he converts you, he has taking you from this world, applying this to you, the atonement that Jesus Christ won on the cross, and by that, making you holy and sanctified and set apart. In this, we become like God himself, just in this declarative act of his. Because God is holy. And God said to the Israelites, Therefore ye shall be holy, as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Am holy. And Peter repeats that to the church. And Jesus Christ said, Therefore you shall be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is sanctification, holiness, otherness. The first part of it is this declarative act. As in Romans chapter 5, where Paul writes that therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified is an act of God. You don't grow in justification. You have justification. You don't become more and more justified in life. God declares that by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, by his cross, you have been justified. An act of God, a de declaration of him or by him. So this idea of being sanctified, being made holy, this declarative act is a mysterious work. 
It's like the hymn that we just sang. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart. I know not how the Spirit moved convincing men of sin. But the Spirit witnesses to our spirits that you have indeed become a child of God by faith in Christ. So there's no doubt about it. He doesn't leave it as a mystery that cannot be unraveled. But the way it happens, the mystery of the Spirit. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? But you can know by the working of the Spirit within you that you are indeed saved and a child of God and sanctified. If you're in Christ, you have been sanctified, taken out of this world. Well, not in body out of this world. I mean, here we are. We, but sanctified in destiny, sanctified in loyalty, sanctified in perspective. The whole worldview that you had changed over to God's worldview as it is in his word. Paul says to the Ephesians that we've been raised with Christ. We've been seated with him in the heavenly places even while we're here speaking of the certainty of our ultimate destiny. He tells us in the book of Philippians that our citizenship is not here tied to a country, but it is in heaven. This act of God, whereby God sets apart his chosen people. But second, sanctification is a process. Unlike justification, sanctification grows. A lifelong endeavor where we grow to be more and more like Christ and into his image. So God has laid claim to the first fruits, to those he chose to be in his son Jesus. The question for many of us is this, have you laid claim to him? Have you laid claim to him, I mean in your life, I mean in the way we conduct ourselves, in the answers we give to things, the way we think, the choices we make? Have you laid claim to him as he has to you? His interests were served in your salvation in his word-keeping. Have your interests been sanctified by lining up with his interests? Romans 8.29 again, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The image of Christ is the goal. To be like Jesus is what we're striving for. Paul tells the Philippians that he presses on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the verse just before that, he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. God has laid claim. What Paul says to the Philippians is what Paul says to us in 2 Thessalonians when he calls us the first fruits. The first fruits chosen for salvation. God has laid claim to you. And the question is, have you laid claim to God as he has to you? Do you strive with every fiber of your being to be more like Christ with every thought, with every decision, with every point of conflict, looking to his word, seeing his truth, and believing with faith that he gives you that if I follow this word as hard as it can be, I will be blessed and I will be more like Christ, which is blessing itself. Are your interests best served by serving God's interests? God, God's interests being you and me and all his people growing to be more and more like his son. So by sanctification, by the spirit and belief in the truth, 
How do you know you've been sanctified? How do you know you've been set apart to God? How do you know you've been converted? Here's one way. By believing the truth. Not just any truth, but the truth. God's truth. Belief is the same word we get where we get the word faith, which is how the Net Bible, the New English Translation, puts it, and faith in the truth. And I think faith is better because you can believe something to be true, but can you stake everything on it just believing it to be true? There's a difference between believing and faith. You know, when I first learned to rock climb from my friend Charlie Provence, the church I used to go to, we actually started with rappelling. You know what rappelling is, right? Where you go down backwards off a cliff. Well, he took me up to a park where you could walk easily up to the top of this thing. And on the other side, it was fairly straight down. And he showed me the ropes that we were going to use and how strong they were and the anchors that were going to hold me and how strong they were. And he showed me the rappel device and how he worked the, the rope through it and used that for friction and knots and everything that holds it all together. And it all works great. And I believed him. I believed every word he said. And then he demonstrated he actually rappelled down and came back up the other side and hooked me all up and said, now you go. And I believed that those knots were going to hold. I believed that the rope was strong enough and the rappel device would give the friction so I could control myself and not break my neck. I believed all that. There's a difference between belief and faith. Because, boy, I'll tell you, when you're standing there and you're on solid ground, you got your balance, you believe everything's fine, but now lean back and start going down and trust all that stuff. Put your faith in it. That's different altogether. Well, I repelled down. Obviously, I made it. You believe the truth of God? Most of us would say yes. That's why we're here, worshiping together on Sunday morning. Faith. Do you trust it enough to implement it? To look to it? to say my interests are served when I follow with the word of God, the word of Christ. Word for word, this is the word of Christ, who is the very word of God. In the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the difference between just believing it. Propositional truths, we can intellectually take it apart and understand what the words and the phrases mean. Faith is another level. He's given you belief. He's given you faith in his truth. That's part of sanctification. That's part of conversion. The question for us is, have we laid claim to Christ and his word the way he, by his word, freely given, has laid claim to you? He changes your self-interests. Where God's interests are now my interests. We have God's truth. It has propositional content while I know not why or how God made me to believe this, I know that he did. And you can know that he did. And how do you know that he did make you believe this? He gave you faith in the truth? Or we can quantify it at some level. I mean, just go very quickly. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John 1.14. Do you believe that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, God himself, God of God, very God of very God is the... Uh, Somebody help me. What was that one? What? Became flesh. What's the confession? Thank you. <laughs> I couldn't go on without that. As the Nicene Creed says, thank you so much. The word became flesh. Do you believe that God became flesh? Do you have faith in that? 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. Do you believe that God spoke everything is out of nothing that was? Do you have faith in that? Are you willing to stake your life on that? Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hebrews 6, 18, for it is impossible for God to lie. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, and with this we'll move on. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Can we say you have been saved? Do you believe this with all your strength, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and are willing to follow this word? That's the difference between just believing the propositional content of the truths and implementing them in your life. Not just the statements, not being able to just explain their intricacies as our intellectual powers would bring salvation, faith, placing your full hope and trust in them, staking your life as when I first leaned backwards, if anything failed, if the rope or the rappel ring or the knot or anything down, I go. But no, God's word will never fail. Stronger than any of that equipment that was on me. Faith trusts his word by applying it. By saving, by saying daily at every point of decision, if God's interests are my interests and growth in holiness, same word as sanctification, is what he says my interest must be, and this word is powerful to accomplish that, then on that word I will lean back and go with full trust. Now John, you know, Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is factual, but it reveals what facts cannot. You can do something you know is wrong. You can regret it, but the truth of God reveals it even further than the fact that it's wrong. It shows it for what it really is, which is sin. As Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Psalm 119.30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. Set your rules before me. He's chosen the path that serves best his own interests, which is the way of faithfulness, which is to be more and more faithful to God and God's truth found in his word. Is that sanctifying power. You see, what you believe to be true is reflected in your life. If your faith is in the truth, it will be applied daily and constantly. Robert Murray Machane said that for every glance at our sin, we should give ten glances at Jesus. Have you heard that before? Every time we think we've sinned, and we have, give ten glances to Jesus Christ and the redemption and forgiveness that we have in him by repentance. Well, I could piggyback on that and say for our purposes this morning, for every glance at your own best interest, Give ten glances to the word of Christ and what is his interests. God's interest is advanced by obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So choosing a people, converting that chosen people, and now bringing them to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. To this he called you by our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is right there. That we might obtain, or more literally, take possession of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not that we go up to heaven and take it from him. Obviously, it's something he gives you as we become more and more like him, and as we look forward to his return, as we await Christ in his return, and that ultimate and final glorification when he brings us to himself. 
Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, says that the gospel itself is the glory of Jesus Christ. The gospel, that the eternal Son of God became flesh and died for my sins. Did he die for your sins? Have you put your faith and your trust in him and him alone? Do you know that he died for sinners and that on the cross God poured out the wrath that your sins deserve upon him? Do you believe that? Do you have faith in that truth? This is the beginning of obtaining that possession of the glory of Christ. The gospel that the eternal Son of God became flesh and died for my sins. The gospel that on the third day he rose from the dead. The gospel that he will return and bring us to himself. That we will one day have a resurrection like his and be with the Lord forever. And have that glorification. Take possession of that glory that God has in store for us. That God actually advances his self-interests by bringing us into well, God serves his interest, his own interest in the salvation of sinners, and that he does so that we might obtain the glory of Christ himself. Now consider these words from Jesus himself in John chapter 17, verse 22. Because it can sound a bit egocentric. Well, I'm going to be glorified like Christ. God's got glory in store for me. Well, he does, but it's for his interests more than ours. But just so we can get this thing set in our minds that this is our ultimate destiny, destiny if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The glory that God has given his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ then says he has given to his people, those whom he has redeemed. And we will know that glory finally and ultimately when he returns and we are resurrected and brought to himself. Or if we're alive at his return, we'll simply meet him in the air, as the Apostle Paul says. So how could our glorification, how could my glorification possibly serve God's interests? Well, it's not because you and I have anything to offer God that he needs. It's not because you or I had anything to do with our own salvation. God did it all. His interests are Jesus' interests and vice versa. And if Jesus prays as he did, that the glory of which he is the sole possessor, he is now given to those chosen by the Father and for whom he died, then it is God's interest to fulfill the prayer of his beloved Son. Well, all this was written to the Thessalonians to solidify them in this gospel, to give them confidence in continuing in the gospel, in the midst of their afflictions and their persecutions, to know that they were on the right track and that God, in his word, is serving his self-interest. And if it's his interest, then it will surely come to pass. So stay with the gospel. Don't turn away from the traditions that we've given you. And that'll be the text for the next message next week in verse 15. God serves his own interests by keeping his word and choosing out a people for his son, Jesus Christ. And he serves his interests in actually converting that people to his son who died for them. And he serves his interests in your ultimate glorification when Jesus returns and brings him to himself. So Christian, I ask you, do you know that God's self-interest should be yours? And that in every decision, in every point where we have a choice to make, 
using that same word as Joshua told Israel, choose this day whom you will serve? Do you know that your interests must be God's? And that God's interests were served in not only choosing you, but in actually giving you the Holy Spirit and bringing you to his Son and ultimately to glorify you. And with this, let's move on with confidence. Let's look to his word constantly. Let's know that as we look to his truth, we are sanctified more and more by it. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen? Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for bringing us together. We thank you for your word and for this confidence inspiring passage that the Apostle Paul has given us that you, Father, gave him and from him to us. And may we proceed in the strength and the power of your Spirit, always looking to Christ to serve his interests, which we know are your interests, Father, and will advance us more into what we must be, which is more into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.